Good afternoon. It's good to be with you. Um, I think we're on page 10 in the books. There's an outline that you might find helpful. You can tell a lot about a person by their favourite places. Rosemary and I live quite close to one of the most heavily populated uh, sections of Perth. It's called Karakata Cemetery, and it's one of my favourite places. Uh, I've got the Bible on my side here. Ecclesiastes says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of party. Because you learn more from death than you do from celebration and drinking lots. Now I need my clicker and let's see if I can get it working. So this is Karakata Cemetery. As you can see, it's very heavily populated. Very popular place. A great place to go for a walk. Uh, this is a... Uh, I've missed one, have I? No. This, this is one of the uh, gravestones that I came across at Karakata Cemetery. To live in the hearts of those we leave behind is not to die. Do you feel the longing in that? We don't want to lose people, but when they die, the relationships, whatever we had with them is, is sort of lost, but maybe we can hold on to that if we just remember them. Sentimental piffle. It's, it's just not true, is it? It's a longing, it's a hope, but there's no reality to it. This is another one I came across, although I think it's a spoof. It was on the internet. (laughs) The resurrection of Jesus is what we're thinking about today. Jesus who died and lived again. And in anybody's assessment, that's a fairly strange event. As far as I know, it's unique in history. And it's not easy to work out even what happened. Did somehow his heart restart? Did somebody get a defibrillator in there and bring it back to life again? Did all the cells start to regenerate? I'm not quite sure. What we do know, though, was he was dead long enough for resuscitation not to be what was going on. It was life after life after death. There was a period when he was dead, and I presume his soul, his spirit continued, but then he came back to real physical life. He was seen alive again. It was unexpected. It was unprecedented. And it's sort of weird. And it's not immediately clear what it means. What significance did it have? And does it have? Imagine for a minute you heard that John Lennon was alive again. You know who John Lennon was? Some of you have heard of the Beatles, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, John Lennon. He was assassinated on the streets of New York. 1998, I think it was. Imagine you heard that he was alive again. I presume, first of all, you'd be sceptical, wouldn't you? I certainly would be. Come on, he's dead and buried. People don't come back to life. But imagine you explored it a bit more and it actually seemed legit. What would you make of it? What, What would it mean? Would you conclude that somehow that event affected you and your life? You might think maybe it opens a door. If he can come back, maybe I could as well. I wonder what his secret is. Would you conclude that John Lennon was the judge of the world? Not likely, I think. Now, after Jesus' resurrection, he appears to his disciples. They're trying to make sense of his resurrection. They're not expecting it. It's not something they, that was just the wishful thinking. We really hope he's alive and they imagined him into existence. No, they weren't expecting it at all. But in Luke 24, he says to them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. 
It means written in the scriptures in the Old Testament. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Jesus is trying to help them understand his resurrection and what it means. He says, as the scriptures predicted that the Messiah would suffer and rise again. That is to make sense of Jesus, to understand him and his resurrection. To work out what it means for us, we've got to go back to the Old Testament, to the backstory that God created. Because his resurrection, unlike John Lennon's, which didn't happen, has a backstory that helps us understand its meaning. So we need to go back to that epic story that is the Old Testament, that is really kicked into action in the promises that God's made, God makes to Abraham and then to David in Genesis 12 and to Samuel 7. Now, you looked at these in your seminars this morning, so I don't need to do it all, do I? But as God makes promises to Abraham, he lays out a blueprint of where he's going. He says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Your life has become a curse because of sin and evil and death, but I will bless you. I'll bless you with offspring. You'll become a great nation. I'll bless you with a relationship. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll bless you with land, a place to live in peace and security. Now, when God makes those promises to Abraham, there's nothing there. There's one man and his wife and a few other hangers-on, and and that's all. There's no nation. There's no land. there's, There's not much relationship either. But as you follow the story of the Old Testament, God gradually, piece by piece, starts to build a nation. One man becomes a family with Isaac. They become a bigger family with a couple of sons and then 12. And it starts to multiply like rabbits and you end up with a great nation. They don't have a land. In fact, they're slaves in Egypt for 400 years. But God rescues them out of slavery dramatically, wonderfully, and takes them to the land he promised Palestine, and he gives it to them. He lays it on a platter. They have this land, and they have a relationship with God, which is sort of confirmed in the sacrificial system and the temple being built, uh, which is just after David. But by the time you get to David, you think, it's all happened. This has been incredible. It's wonderful. I, I couldn't believe it back there at the beginning, but God, look what you've done. But you're probably left thinking, I wonder what the future is. It's, it's been fulfilled. What now? What's next? And then we get the promises to David, which have the same sort of shape. David's offspring will include a forever king, a kingdom forever. The relationship with God of, of his son, of, of the kings of Israel, will be like being the son of God, not just the people of God, but the son of God. And that land they've been given will be secure because the king God gives them will reign and conquer all their enemies. And so the promises are extended and deepened. The destiny and welfare of God's people, of Israel, depends on the king that God will give them, the Messiah, the the succession of kings who are descendants of David, because God will establish their rule forever over the people. Internally, they will have a king who rules them. Externally, they'll have a a leader who leads them to victory over every threat and enemy that comes. And that leader will be their king, God's son. Notice this is not a democracy. God doesn't say, well, one day uh, you'll get to such a a point of uh, political evolution that you can decide for yourself who's going to be your leader. God is is the king. He, He created them. He made them as he has all of humanity. And their future is the future of David. 
It's the future of David's son and the future of Israel and the world is assured by the promise of God, by the commitment that God makes to David and therefore to his whole world, that all is good, all will be good. But hopes are dashed pretty quickly. Israel's kings are disasters on the whole. Israel are so prone to wander, they wander far from God. The nation of Israel is split by civil war. It all falls to pieces. It goes down, down, down till they're smashed to pieces by the Babylonians. And the line of David is like a stump that's been cut off. Now you get a, a chainsaw, you go out in the forest and you cut a tree down. Well, all you've got left is a stump. It dies. There's nothing left of the line of David. The people are enslaved and exiled. The temple is demolished. Jerusalem is in ruins. But even as the rubble builds, God rebuilds the hope of the people of Israel. Even as it gets worse and worse, God keeps saying, this is not the end. My promises stand. I'm going to do something extraordinary one day. One of the places we see this... Lockie, can you take me to the next? There it is. Let's come. Uh, Daniel chapter 2. You may not be familiar with it, although the story might, might come to mind. King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, has this dream that troubles him. It's the dream of this huge statue, gold and silver and bronze and iron, standing out in the middle of the land. And then as he's watching, this little rock just appears out of nowhere, smashes into the statue, reduces it to rubble, and then proceeds to grow and fill the whole world. Strange dream. That's nightmare sort of stuff, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar can't work out what it's about. He finally works out that Daniel, the Daniel who knows the living and true God, can explain it to him. And Daniel explains that the statue represents the kingdoms, the empires of the world. They look strong and permanent. They look rich and and wealthy. They look like they will dominate forever. But one day, God will intervene. God's kingdom will come. It will demolish all those kingdoms and rise to replace them. The kingdom of God. Another place, one of many we could go to, is Isaiah chapter 52. The the picture might be familiar to you. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news, brings gospel news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. What's this about? Well, imagine a courier. The old days, there's no television and internet or newspapers. News comes by couriers who've got to run to tell you. And a courier arrives in the ruins of Jerusalem. And they've got bloodied feet because they've been running over all those rocky paths. That their, their feet would smell to high heaven if you actually put your nose near them. And yet they're beautiful feet because they bring good news, good tidings. And what is the good news? What is this gospel they bring? Your God reigns. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, it, it means more than, well, God is God in heaven and he rules over all the world. Because that's been true all the time. Now, this person is bringing news of something that has changed. If we keep reading, you see at the bottom there, it's something that they will see with their own eyes. They'll see how in the physical world, God reigning. Evidence that God is reigning. And the next couple of verses. Burst into song, sing together. 
The Lord lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. The God rolled up his sleeves. He got down and in it. He acted against all the enemies of God's people and he crushed them so that they were liberated, so they were saved, so they can now come back to Jerusalem and rebuild it because that is what God promises. That one day he will intervene so decisively that the news is our God reigns. Our God has smashed all our enemies and we, we benefit. We now have peace and security because he saves us. And so the faithful of Israel waited and waited and waited. They knew that God had promised consolation and comfort. They knew that he promised this decisive intervention into our history where he steps in and take on, takes on the powers that oppress his people. They waited for God's Messiah, that shoot from the stump of David, who would wield the power of God against the enemies and bring all the benefits of his victory and rule to them and the rest of God's people. And they waited. And they waited. And then there was a voice that cried out, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The time of waiting is over. Jesus announces that the kingdom is bursting in. There's no more waiting. Believe, repent, align your life with, with what God is doing. Be on his side because when the kingdom comes to be opposed to him is a disaster. Jesus announces it and then he springs into action. We roll his sleeves up, rolling back the forces of Satan and the effects of evil in the world. And many heard and many believed. Many experienced something of that power. But then he's crucified. Their hopes are dashed. Confusion reigns. And then the rumours begin to swirl. The, the women say that we went to the tomb and it was all empty. The, his body wasn't there. And others said, we've seen him. He, he's alive again. For real. Can you see now what it might mean, this resurrection? Once you've heard the backstory, can you see what this resurrection is saying? In Luke 24, Jesus says, My death and resurrection were always the plan of God. That's what you've been waiting for. And forgiveness is now available to all because your God reigns. So this is for a couple of passages that spell that out for us. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1. And then the passage um, that Sarah read for us from Ephesians chapter 5. So what does it all mean? Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, take 1, Romans chapter 1. So come with me if you're a Bible sort of person that likes flipping. Where are we up to? No, next one. Won't go. Here we go. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He's actually saying, uh, you know that guy who was to come with beautiful feet saying, your God reigns? I'm one of them. I'm one of those heralds. The gospel of God that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Lights come on, don't they? Regarding his son, the son of God, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Does that light? Come on there, descendant of David. What, what's the significance of that? 
Well, a descendant of David would be the one who would rule over the kingdom forever. That's what it's saying. He, he is the Messiah. That descendant of David. The gospel I proclaim is about the Messiah, the promised one of God, who was the son of God, but became a man. And then verse 4, And through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection of the dead, from the dead. That is, Jesus is identified as the Messiah, God's king sent to crush his enemies and bring the benefits of his victory and rule. And when does that happen? Well, that happens in the resurrection. That's the event that appoints him, that enthrones him in power. The son of God for all eternity is not the same as God the son. Sorry, God the son in all eternity is not the same idea as the son of God. The son of God is the Messiah. The human who rules as God's king. The 2 Samuel 7 who, uh, promise of David's son who would be God's son. God reigns. Is Jesus reigning? He is the Lord. And so he summarises at the end of verse 4, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is quick summary, his shorthand. Jesus Christ. Christ just means Messiah. Jesus is that Messiah God's promised. That's his identity. And he is our Lord, that he's, he's, he's the king, he, he's the boss. That's his job description, the person who rules over everything, who has the power and authority over all people. That's worth stopping and just reflecting at this point, that our culture has a sort of love-hate relationship with power and authority, especially because it smells a bit of privilege. And under the influence of critical theory and other things, we're suspicious of privilege and power. Privilege and power equal oppression, whether that's white privilege or male privilege or heterosexual privilege or whatever it might be. And all privilege ought to be fundamentally opposed and undermined, or if you're part of it, apologised for. But not all power is oppressive. Some is, yes, but not all power is oppressive. We learned some of that during COVID, haven't we? Because when COVID hit, we longed for leaders who would exercise power. Imagine what Australia would be like if we had no leaders, if we didn't recognise their power and authority to make decisions, to close borders, to, well, order some vaccines and try and get them into the country. We'd be a mess, wouldn't we? And almost every Premier and Prime Minister in Australia increased their, their ratings significantly during COVID because we realised when we were under threat of something that, that might harm us, that we needed someone in power, someone we could trust, someone who would take action, good action. Now, they've since lost some of that trust, haven't they? Their, their, their relational capital started to go out because they haven't done it well all the time. But do you remember those first few months of COVID when we were so glad that we had a government we had people who were in control, who were pulling the strings, who were closing borders and opening borders. We need people in authority when we are um, not feeling secure. And when the person uses power to benefit and protect his subjects, it's a wonderful thing. And that's what God has provided in Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Take one, take two. Ephesians chapter one. The context of the, part, the passage that Sarah read for us is really chapter 
1 verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's an incredible statement, isn't it? He has blessed us, not he will bless us. With every spiritual blessing, not just a few. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And then he turns to pray for these people. Now, what do you pray for people who've received all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies? It's sort of like, what do you buy as a birthday present for somebody who's got everything? There's nothing you can buy, is it? So what does Paul pray? Does he pray God will give them more blessings? No. He prays that they will know their blessings. So come with me to verses... Uh, where are we? But come to verse 17. I keep asking that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you might know God better. That is, power to understand, by God's Spirit, God himself, to know God, the giver of all those blessings. Which is a wonderful thing to praise, isn't it? That we would know the giver of all those things that, that we get in Jesus more deeply, more fully. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. Mixing metaphors, you can cope with that, can't you? A heart with eyes that gets light shine onto it, in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the glorious riches, sorry, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. He prays that we will know the gifts more deeply. Not we'll get more, but we'll know and understand, and that takes the power of God to know deeply, the work of the Spirit, to be convinced that that hope is real and substantial. And if you know that, Paul thinks, that will change your life. If you know the hope to which he's called you, the hope of resurrection, that will change everything. It's not that he hasn't given you that hope. He wants you to know it. And that really is what this NYC is about. But he also prays for the knowledge of power. He he prays for the power of knowledge and then the knowledge of power. Verse 19. I want you to know, I I pray that you'll know his incomparably great power for us who believe That's the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. He actually makes it sound as if raising Jesus to life again was quite difficult. And he wants us to know that that power that raised Jesus is God's power for us and in us. He uses a word that sort of means both. It's in us, but it's also for us, for our benefit. As if he thinks that you already have experienced God's power like that. He wants you to know it and understand it. What is God's power like? Well, let me give you an analogy. My first car was a mini minor. And it was the, the most gutless car you could, you could think of. We had a relatively steep driveway. But if I were to drive my mini up the driveway... I could not take a passenger. I had to tell them to get out, walk up the driveway, and then I'd try and get up after them. At traffic lights, I had to put, put my foot down two seconds before the lights changed green so that they didn't change back to red before I got across the intersection. It was that sort of car. It, it had no power whatsoever. Compare that to an airport. Have you have been to an airport and just watched planes take off? Because when they're on the ground, they just look heavy and cumbersome, don't they? Especially the old 747s that look like pregnant pigs. 
And you think, how on earth will that ever get off the runway? And then the pilot, I presume, I've never seen them do it, but I presume what they do is they just push the levers forward and suddenly you get pushed into the back of your seat and the thing starts to, to accelerate to 50 to 100 to 200 to 300 to 400 to, to 800 kilometres an hour. It just keeps going. The power just comes on and you're off and flying. Well, God's power is more like the jet, but much more than my mini. And he says, that's the power that's at work for us and in us, the power that raised Jesus. The power, he says, that's like his mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. It makes it sound as if it was difficult for God to raise Jesus. As if God had to sort of really roll up his sleeves and put his muscle and effort into raising Jesus from the dead. Now, that seems bizarre and almost heretical, doesn't it? That I should think something is hard for God. When he created the universe, what did he do? Did he get out a spade and labour for hours and hours and exhaust it? He just said, let there be, and there was. Why could resurrecting Jesus be difficult for God? Why did he have to exert all his strength and power to do it? Let's stop and consider for a minute. What does it take to raise to life? hard to know, isn't it? Because I've never done it. Which is easier, to take life or to give life? That's easy. Because it's easy to take life, isn't it? I've almost done it a few times simply by not watching where I was driving. I took a motorcyclist off his bike one day. I thought I'd killed him. God's kindness, I hadn't. If you want to do it, it's very easy, isn't it? You just push him off a cliff. (laughs) But giving life, can you do that? No. And I walk through Karakata Cemetery. I never think to say to some of the dead people there, come on, come alive, stand up. Because I know I can't do it. My advice is if you're going to try it in the cemetery sometime, just go alone. Don't let anybody else hear you saying it. Because <laughs> they'll think you're, you're crazy, you're mad. Because you, you can't do it, can you? I'm so thankful to God for the medical care available, surgeries to vaccines, and our community channels the best minds we have and some billions and billions of dollars every year into medical research, but the doctors who are the product of that system still say, where there's life, there's hope. Where there isn't life, there's no hope. They, they can't do anything. Now, we know Jesus did it with people like Lazarus. He just said, Lazarus, come out. But he only raised Lazarus back to mortal life, not to immortal life. I don't know what that takes. How hard is it? I don't know because I've never done it. How hard is it for God? Well, I don't really know. I can only guess. But I want you to see that it's not just that God raised Jesus to life. He raised him to rule. The power he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, verse 20, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age but in the age to come, God placed all things under his feet. What does it take to raise somebody to rule the universe? That's much easier to work out how hard that is. To be raised far above all rule and authority, now and forever, is he pictures it as having everything under his feet. Now, it's a bit hard to work out which 
image you're supposed to get with that one. One of it is the image of a footstool. You know what a footstool is? When you're just relaxing watching TV and you want to put your feet up on something, what do you use? Not your sibling. You just use a footstool or or the dog, don't you? Because they're under you. They're just your footstool to make you feel comfortable. But probably he's got the image of what would happen in an ancient, um, uh, in a kingdom, when if a king conquered one of his rebels, one of his enemies, the king, if he was still alive, would be brought into the conquering king and made to kneel in front of him, and the conquering king would put his foot on his neck. He is now my footstool. He is under my heel. It's that sort of image. So what does it take to raise Jesus, not just to life, but to rule the universe like that so every power is under his feet? Well, let's do a thought experiment. Imagine we wanted to do that for Ruby. Okay, we want to raise Ruby above all power and authority in the universe. You want her to rule the universe. How hard's that? Well, it seems hard, doesn't it? Let's start small scale. Imagine we just wanted her to rule over mid-year conference. Okay, what would we need to do for her to rule over mid-year conference? Remove Steve. Steve. That's right. (laughs) We'd have to take that trumpet off him, give it to Ruby, and Steve would object. We'd have to crush Steve, wouldn't we? That's the only way that Ruby could be Lord and King of mid-year conference. Well, what if we wanted to make her Lord and King or Queen of Australia? I suspect eventually ScoMo would hear, wouldn't he? The rumours that get around that this rabble group of people want to make Ruby the King of Australia, in charge of everything Australia. Well, they'd probably send the police around first. Have to crush them. Then the Army and the Navy and the Air Force. Well, we'd have to deal with all of them, wouldn't we? Now, that's getting a little bit harder. Well, imagine we succeed. Ruby is now Queen of Australia. And she claims the whole world as hers. Well, I guess eventually Joe Biden would hear, wouldn't he? And he's got a little bit more firepower than the Australian military. Just a little bit. Nuclear bombs, all sorts of stuff. If she's going to rule the world, Joe Biden has got to get crushed. And everything that he's got at his disposal. And then Putin and anybody else who thinks that they ought to be ruling the world. See, it's not easy to get somebody far above all authority in the universe. The only way to do it is to crush every other power and authority till they are under his feet. That is hard. That takes the power of God. And that's what God has done in the resurrection of Jesus. He has put him far above all authority. And what's the most powerful power in the universe? Well, it's not Biden, because Biden will die. It's not Steve, because Steve will die. It's not ScoMo, because he's going to die. Death rules over all of them. But Jesus conquered death and evil and sin and the devil, crushed by Jesus in his resurrection. It took the mighty power of the creator God, the most powerful power in the universe, to raise Jesus from the dead above all authority. And who benefits from that? Notice the end of verse 22. For the church. Think what? For us? 
Yes, of course, for us. Just like when King David ruled, when God gave him victory, who benefits from all that victory? It's the people of God, isn't it? They live in peace and security. All who take refuge under David. Who benefits from Jesus' victory, from his resurrection? Well, it's all his people. Those who gladly live under his rule, who take refuge under his wings. They live in safety and security. Their enemies cannot touch them. They have peace and prosperity. Some of us live in fear of other powers in the world. Satanic powers, evil powers, spirits and gods, karma and ghosts, Satan and his minions. They have been crushed. You don't need to fear them any longer. Some of us are complicit with those powers. We don't just fear them, we're using them for our gain. We're manipulating them for good fortune. They've been crushed. Leave them or you'll be crushed with them. Paul prays that we will know the power of God in us and for us. That power of God for us in raising Jesus, that power of God in us, which we'll explore tomorrow night, that raises us in chapter 2 of Ephesians. That's tomorrow. So let's see where we've been. Try and summarise. The implications are that the resurrection of Jesus is the turning point of history. The history of the world, the history of the universe, is not some slow evolution, but it's a revolution. It's not that God sometimes updates the wardrobe. It's a reversal. It's the start of something completely new. It was a turning point for Jesus. Sort of pretty obviously, isn't it? It wasn't just the greatest comeback of all time. But the resurrection of Jesus, his enthronement as Lord of heaven and earth, of this age and the age to come. He's been raised above all power and rule to be the undisputed master of the universe. Now, when the Bible says that, it's not saying that God had abdicated his rule for a while. What it means is that his rule was opposed and resisted sort of successfully. Rebellion and pride flourished. Death reigned over all. But in the resurrection of Jesus, God reclaims the universe. He wins the decisive battle of good versus evil, of life versus death. The outcome of the war has been determined by that battle. The universe is now under new management. And so the destiny of the universe is reversed. Because up until Jesus, it was all decay leading to death, wasn't it? It was entropy inextricably increasing and increasing towards that nothingness. It's not just human life, but the world we inhabit that was subjected to death and decay. In Adam, all die. It's like this mighty current of a river that just flows all in one direction, sweeping all before it. And many resisted. They tried to to live longer. They tried to resist death, but it just swept them all away. They all failed. And then came Jesus. And it wasn't that Jesus just resisted for a little bit longer than any of them. No, he, he was actually swept away by death, into death, only to come back alive again. And so in his resurrection, death is rolled back. The dominance of death has been disputed and crushed once for all. The direction is reversed. And one day the effect of Jesus coming back to life will affect everything in the universe. Everything will come back to life as it should be. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Death will be no more. Righteousness will dwell in the kingdom of God. 
And so the resurrection of Jesus must be a turning point for you and me, personally. What will you do with Jesus? When he came, we crucified him. But God raised him to life again. You see those two verdicts, don't you? We crucified him. We said, get lost. We don't want you. We especially don't want you ruling us. We'll kill you. God raised him to life. He reversed our verdict on Jesus and appointed him as Lord and ruler forever. Why be a Christian? There's lots of reasons to be Christian. Although it's getting increasingly unpopular to be a Christian, you won't be voted the most cool person in your class. But let me give you two reasons to be a Christian. The first is because it's reality. To live as if Jesus is not Lord is to live in a fantasy world. He is Lord of all, whether you like it or not. His resurrection is the proof and the achievement of that. Now, I know you can ignore some realities without any problems, but try ignoring something like gravity for a little while and you'll see how stupid and dangerous it is. When there is a reality that big in the universe, if the universe is now under new management of Jesus, then to be a Christian is simply to live in reality. If you're not a Christian, I take it it means you're living in a fantasy world. You, you may not know that. You might not have chosen that, but that's the truth if Jesus has risen from the dead. If you are a Christian already, why go on being a Christian, especially when it gets tough? Because it's reality. There is no other reality. There's no other alternate universe you can go and live in where Jesus is not Lord. Secondly, because Jesus is the only hope of salvation. Can you save yourself from death and condemnation? You can't, can you? Visit the cemetery? That will be you one day. You, you, can't, you can delay it. You can't stop it. You can't reverse it. Neither can Buddha or Muhammad. Neither can all the money in the world or ScoMo or the Australian cricket team or anybody else. West Coast Eagles might win another game, and, but that won't save you from death and hell. Only Jesus can. He's the only one who's gone to death, bore hell, and been raised victorious. All who take refuge in him will be saved. If you're not yet a Christian, or maybe if you're not sure, can I just talk to you for a minute? How do you become a Christian? In some sense, it's very easy. But it's a very profound change at the core of your life. See, imagine your life has a, a sort of throne in the centre of your life. And at the moment, I take it that you're sitting on that throne. because it's your life, and you will do with it as you please. You, you call the shots. You will live how you want to live, because it is your life, is how you think. Well, to become a Christian, imagine, is step down off that throne. And say to Jesus, Jesus, you are the Lord. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to call the shots in my life from now on. I might not be very good at letting you do that. And occasionally I might resist a bit, but that's, what I want. that's how I want to live. I want to live with you as my Lord. I want you to be calling the shots. I want to live for you. Now that's very simple, isn't it? But it's a very deep and profound change at the very heart of your being. 
So if you're not a Christian, can I ask, why not take that step? If you're convinced that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is now the Lord of the universe, why not come into reality? Why not come under his gracious, loving rule? There is no other king like Jesus who's willing to give his life for you, who's crushed your enemies and offers you life and peace and hope. It's very simple. You just need to say something like that to Jesus. Jesus, sorry, I've lived my own way. Please forgive me. I want to live with you as my Lord. Please help me. Now, that's a very personal thing, isn't it? And it's not something you'd sort of do in public, probably. Can I encourage you, if that's what you're thinking that you'll do, to maybe just take some time before we have lunch. Go away by yourself and do business with the Lord Jesus. And if you do, can I just point out that it's very helpful to tell someone else, maybe a Christian friend, somebody else that you trust, that you've taken that step because you've started a new life. And like a newborn baby, you need a bit of help, a bit of encouragement, and I'm sure they'll be able to provide that for you. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we acknowledge with joy that you are the Lord of all and therefore the Saviour of all who come to you. Thank you so much that you have created a kingdom that we can be part of and benefit from your rule and your victory. Fill us with hope and joy in what you have done. Amen.